0: Finding Life Again When we crossed the border from Germany into Czechoslovakia, people threw food to us from their windows. In the German towns, they could see we were concentration camp Jews because we were so bedraggled and half-dead, but they had thrown stones at us and vilified us. Yet in Czechoslovakia, People threw food to us. When they did, the SS would shoot into the air and tell the Czechs to stop throwing food or they would shoot into their windows. We walked for about two and a half weeks without knowing where we would end up as we marched along. By the time they marched us into Theresienstadt at the end of April, I was close to starvation and collapsed in front of a column of people. Somebody came and gave me a piece of bread and a piece of sausage. It was the first real food I had eaten in two and a half weeks. A week or two later, we were liberated by the Soviet army. I remember the day of liberation quite vividly. In the morning, the first thing that we noticed was that the Czech gendarmes and German guards had disappeared. Then the Soviet frontline soldiers, mainly Tatars and Uzbeks, started coming through the gates. After a while, we all rushed out, and I found myself with a band of youths who were wandering around. We soon came to the main highway, and saw a multitude of German refugees trudging along, either being expelled from Czechoslovakia or fleeing back to Germany." They were mainly families with children, carrying pekler, bundles, and walking with wheelbarrows or riding in horse-drawn wagons or on bicycles. As they walked along, they were being assaulted by Czechs mainly, and some Soviet soldiers and a few survivors too. I remember very clearly my own sentiments of pity and commiseration towards these German refugees because they reminded me of my own suffering and the suffering of my family. Some of my companions also expressed similar sentiments. Even after all these years, I still find it intriguing that instead of the intense hatred I should have felt towards these people, because they were German, what I felt was empathy. As I was walking beside a field, I noticed a pair of horses hitched to a wagon, grazing. Nobody else was around, so I stayed with these two horses, fascinated and forgot about everything else. I sat on the ground and watched them, reminded of when I had played with the horses on my grandfather's farm. After a while, I plucked up my courage, climbed into the wagon and picked up the reins, Vio! Go! I shouted in Polish, just as I remembered wagon drivers doing before the war. And the horses responded and started moving. Once I drove the horses into Theresienstadt, they became mine. Theresienstadt had become a camp for those who had nowhere else to go. And though I had a bed there, I spent most of my nights sleeping with my horses in the barn I created for them in a broken-down building. They became my family, and I was very attached to them. As I had no food allocations for them, I had to scavenge for whatever I could find, Like stale bread, which I soaked in water, and hay, which I cut from the ditches and dried in the sun. The horses did not do well on this diet and had diarrhea until I finally found a sympathetic Soviet field kitchen sergeant from whom I begged some oats so I could modify the horses' diet. I began to work for the Soviet and Czech administration of the camp. Using my horses, and wagon to deliver food to the German prisoners of war and SS soldiers who were being held for trial as war criminals. One day, as usual, I delivered the food from the camp kitchen, and the man in charge of giving it out told me he was in need of an assistant. He asked me if I would stay and help serve the food. I wasn't too keen on this. The German prisoners anxious to get the food, began pushing, yelling, and clamoring for their portions, which made me so angry that I lashed out and threw a ladleful of food at them. Afterwards, I felt tremendous remorse. In my mind, I had become like the Nazis, like the cruel and heartless men who had treated us so badly when we were starving. I felt empty at the end of the war. I was a loner, an introspective person who walked the streets by myself in a fog, like I had in the Warsaw Ghetto. I was disenchanted with the world and I did not feel like getting involved with other people. I mostly kept to myself. There are days, still, when I can hardly believe I survived all of it. I asked myself, how was it possible for anybody to survive Skarżysko? According to statistics, approximately 25,000 Jews went through that camp, and about 5,000 survived. I can only say, once again, that it was providence. I don't know if I would have survived Skarzysko if I hadn't had cats to watch out for me, and if he hadn't had a wife who was so ill so I could look after her. And then there was the SS kitchen in Kolditz, where I worked and had enough food for myself, so I was able to give my rations to Rav Eisner and the Obershawfeere on the bike during the death march, who pushed me back into the column whenever I lagged behind. But even with the help of Providence, how did I make it? I think in part it was because I worked at making myself invisible." Like a horse with blinkers on, I didn't look right or left, didn't catch anyone's eye. I merely existed in that maelstrom of iniquity and tried to hide inside myself so I wouldn't be part of it. The writer Aaron Appelfeld, himself a child survivor, said in Encounter, a book of essays on his writings, that for young people, the five years of the Shoah, The ghettos and the camps, that was their upbringing. These children didn't have a past, and they didn't know about the future. The Holocaust wasn't a normal life, but it was the only life they knew. I was one of those children. I grew up in abnormality, and the Shoah taught me to be a survivor. It was my education, and its cruelty and death and with an occasional flicker of good fortune, was the only normal I knew. After the war, the UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, decided to sponsor a program that would see Britain take in and rehabilitate about 1,000 Holocaust orphans. On their behalf, British philanthropist Leonard Goldschmidt Montefiore persuaded his government to agree to a special scheme whereby young orphan survivors would be flown to Britain, put up in hostels, and trained for a new life. Eventually, 732 children made the journey to Britain and were resettled throughout the UK. I was among the first group of 350 orphans chosen to be on the first flight to England. But when the time came for me to leave Dresdenstadt, I refused to go, unless I could take my horses with me. I had become so attached to my horses that the only family I had left that I refused to leave them behind. There were many tears on my part when I was told by a Czech official that I couldn't take them with me but he was kind and clever and said that although horses couldn't fly on planes, if I would agree to go on the plane to Britain, he would have the horses sent to me by boat. I agreed, but of course, once I got on the plane, I never saw my horses again. We flew to Prague first, where the squadron of Royal Air Force bombers were stations that would take us on to Britain. While in Prague, we were housed with Catholic nuns who were part of the Caritas Society, an arm of Catholic charities. The nuns took care of us and showed us the sights of their beautiful city. Years later, I led a group of Catholic educators from the College of St. Elizabeth in New Jersey on a tour of Holocaust sites in Poland and they in turn invited me to come and speak at their college. When I went there in 2006, they presented me with the Order of Caritas and gave me a bronze plaque for distinguished service. Ironically, after being looked after the nuns of Caritas in Prague after the war, years later I was given a plaque for my own services by this same organization. On August 40, 1945, 10 converted Royal Air Force Stirling bombers flew us from Prague to the Royal Air Force Base at Crosby-on-Eden, near Carlisle in England. They put 30 to 40 of us in each of the bellies of the planes where the bombs used to be, and we flew to our new homes. The boys, as we were called, were taken to Troutbeck Bridge, a tiny hamlet near Windermere in the Lake District of England. During the war, a training camp for officers had been built there, and this camp had all the facilities we needed. Buildings with bedrooms, sports facilities, huge halls for dining, classrooms and a gymnasium for indoor sports. It was a ready-made camp for rehabilitation. The British government had specified that the orphans brought over should be 16 years old or younger, but a lot of the children were actually not children at all. They were 17 or 18 years old. After we settled in, the head of the Jewish refugee organization told us that everyone must give their true date of birth to the authorities because they were getting us organized for classes to resume our education. I was only 14 at the time, but quite tall, and when the official asked my date of birth, I replied that it was what I had given them, July 21, 1932. Truthfully, I only knew my birthday in Hebrew, the 21st of Tammuz, and either I or someone else had made a mistake and put July 6th instead of July 21st as my birthday. I also didn't remember at the time, in the German document from Buchenwald, the year of my birth was listed as July 21st, 1927, because my father had from the beginning, told me to say I was five years older than I really was. The official got cross with me, not believing that I was only 14. He decided to punish me for lying and put me in the class with the younger children. I wasn't happy and I felt discriminated against, but I did my best to participate in the life of the camp as we swam went on hikes, and played sports. I was also part of a club called the Primrose. Decades later, in 1963, the members of that club formed a group that we called the 45 Aid Society. We collected money and gave it once a year to worthy causes. We still keep in touch to this day and have reunions yearly. We also publish an annual journal before Rosh Hashanah called the 45 Journal. In this journal, we write stories about what happened to us in the war and encourage other people who were in camps, not only the boys, to submit their stories. I myself have written the story of my bar mitzvah and others as well. Two occurrences stand out for me in my three months at Troutbeck Bridge. The first had to do with my curious nature. I like to know and I like to learn. We had a nurse at the facility, but no hospital. And if someone was ill or needed dental work, they were taken to the hospital in Windermere. I often saw a big Rolls Royce drive up to take kids to the hospital, and I was fascinated by the car. I've always loved motor cars and thought it would be lovely to have a ride in this Rolls-Royce, but how would I get a ride in that car? I went to the nurse and lied that I had a toothache. The next day or so, the Rolls-Royce arrived and took me to the dentist who asked me where the toothache was. I pointed to a tooth, and before I could say another word, he strapped me in and pulled out my perfectly healthy tooth. I have never replaced that tooth, so as to remind myself not to let my curiosity get the better of my good judgment. The second incident involved my battle with sports. Coming from a religious family, I had never played any sports whatsoever. But the sports director tried to get me to play soccer, which is called football, in England. I had what we call in Yiddish two left hands and two left feet, meaning that I was clumsy. I had no idea how to go about it. Since I was strong, my team put me in goal. And although I had fantasies of flying up And catching the ball, I didn't catch any at all. The other boys on the team were older and they made fun of me and kicked the ball at me to ridicule me. The sports director saw that soccer wasn't going to work out and decided that since I was a big stocky boy, I'd be a good candidate for boxing. I put on the boxing gloves and stepped into the ring where my opponent was waiting. He was a few centimeters shorter than I was and much skinnier, but the next thing I knew, I was on the floor and unconscious. He gave me one hit, and that was the end of my boxing career. It was also the end of my sports career at Windermere. It was apparent to everyone that I was not a sportsman. For a long time after the war, I didn't think about what happened to me in the Holocaust. I thought only about being alive, and I acted in the moment in the present. Although I didn't have any problems or nightmares for the first 10 years, I suffered from the lack of being a social person. I wasn't an active part of the group. And I'm not even in any of the photographs taken of the Windermere children at that time. I wasn't a sportsman or socially active, and because of that, I was always kind of pushed aside by the other boys. We were at an age when boys and girls became aware of each other, and a lot of the boys and girls were friends at Windermere, but I wasn't friends with any of the girls either. I was there with 350-odd girls and boys. But I spent a lot of time alone and again was isolated, living mainly in my own brain and with my own thoughts. That didn't do me much good then or later on in life. I think that my solitary nature had a lot to do with how safe I had felt with my parents who provided my sister and me with a carefully monitored environment. Even in the ghetto, my parents guarded us fiercely, and we spent much of the time alone in hiding. In Skarzysko, I had my friend Yakov, but other than that, I was never part of a group. I was always solitary, both in my intellectual and social life. So Windermere, even though it was really quite a wonderful experience, merely accentuated my differences from other kids. Fortunately for me, Rabbi Weiss, the rabbi who was in charge of our religious activities, knew of my family and my grandfather, and he took me under his wing. He saw that I did not really fit in at Windermere and decided that I should go to a yeshiva hostel called Eitz Chaim in Whitechapel, in the east of London. They called them hostels, which is a much nicer word than orphanages, but an orphanage it was. Again, though, it was difficult for me there. The boys were much older there, too, and quite nasty as boys can be they abused me by forcing me to do things I didn't want to do and beating me up if I didn't. I spent close to nine months there and hated every minute of it. In fact, I was so unhappy that eventually I ran away. We were allowed to take a weekend off from the yeshiva, and I did just that and went to stay at a hostel in Ascot where I knew some boys were staying. I complained to Mr. Heinz, the social worker there, about my treatment at the yeshiva and my unhappiness. A German who came come to England before the war, Heinz was a wonderful man. He told me I didn't have to stay at the yeshiva and said if I didn't want to go back, I could remain in Ascot and he would have my clothes sent over. But even in Ascot I was unhappy. again. I didn't fit in. The boys were much older than I was and paid little attention to me. They all had non-Jewish girlfriends and although a few of the boys tried to pair me off with a girl, I was too innocent and it was very awkward for me. One incident from my time there shows how isolated and rejected I felt. I liked to go to the cinema and the rule at Ascot was that if you went to the five o'clock show, supper would be left for you when you got back. Once after I had been to the cinema with some other boys, we came back to find the table set with supper for everyone but me. I may not have been social, but I was quite assertive and also strong. I got so angry and frustrated that I lifted the long, heavy table up So all the plates of food on it went flying. After that, Heinz decided there was something wrong with me and sent me to the great Ormond Street Hospital, which specialized in children's issues, to be checked over. I went once or twice, and the psychiatrist gave me all kinds of tests, like the Roshash. At my final checkup, a doctor concluded there was nothing wrong with me. She said that I simply liked to assert myself and preferred to be independent, on my own, and there was nothing the matter with that. She suggested I go to the O.T. Organization for Rehabilitation Through Training, trade school, where I could learn how to be an electrician or a carpenter. I went for a short time, quickly realizing that I didn't want that either. I decided that what I wanted was to live with a family and go to work. Everyone, Heinz and the Jewish Relief Organization, called the Central British Fund, agreed that I would be happier in that kind of environment, and they found me the Diamond family in Crouch End, North London, who agreed to take me in. I paid them for board and lodging, but they became like a family to me. I shared a room with a young man named Victor, and the two of us spent lots of time together. He became a lifelong friend. From then on, I had very little to do with the boys with whom I came to England. I went on a few outings with the Primrose Club before we formed the 45 Society, but not many. Instead, during the week, I went to work, and on Saturday mornings, I went to shul with the diamonds. Often in the afternoons, we would go to the beach at Brighton together. I started my working life potting plants in an English gentleman's house. The lord of the house was always on horseback. I don't think I ever saw him walking. One day, I was in the shed potting flowers when he came in. He asked what I was doing and when I responded, he said I wasn't doing a good enough job so that I wasn't doing my best. I guess my temper got the better of me. I pulled off my apron and angrily said if my best wasn't enough for him, he could have his plants and his job back. Then I walked out. My second job was an apprentice at Ford Motor Company. Since I love motor cars, I thought this would be ideal. But one of the jobs an apprentice did was to dismantle all the parts from army surplus vehicles and clean them up so the mechanics could use the parts in putting together second-hand trucks for sale. The engine blocks were always used because they were in fine condition. And then new spark plugs were put in and other usable parts were reconditioned. My job was to unscrew the engines, wash them with paraffin, and clean them. Doing this, I was having problems breathing. At the clinic in the factory, the doctor told me that the smell of the oils and cleaning materials was bad for my lungs, since I had weak lungs due to my pneumonia as a child. He advised me to change jobs. Next, I was sent to work for an optician where my apprenticeship consisted of sweeping the floor and making tea. I wasn't there long before the optician mentioned that his wife was ill and asked me to do him a favor by going to his home and making her some tea or whatever she needed. That in itself wasn't an issue since I had been a nurse to a sick woman in Skarżysko. But when I arrived at their home, I found they had two big dogs. Dogs were not my favorite animals, especially because the Nazis and their vicious dogs were still fresh in my memory. Also, in Hasidic homes, we did not have animals. The optician's wife was in bed when I came in. She asked me to make her tea and do some other chores around the house. Then she asked me to take the dogs some food and clean out their kennels. The kennels were full of garbage, and I went back to her and told her I had come to her home to help out because she was ill, but I was not a servant and I wouldn't look after her dogs. I am an apprentice optician, I reminded her. I politely said goodbye and went back to the shop. I told my boss I couldn't clean out his dog kennels and he said that was fine, but that I couldn't work for him anymore. The next job I found was in a factory that I think was called the Sigma Corporation. They made frames and lenses for eyeglasses and I worked as an apprentice there for quite a long time, in fact, until I left England at the end of 1948. My cousin, Ralph Kroll, was living in Paris when I came to England, and he had discovered I had survived when he saw my name on a red cross list at the end of 1946. He came to England to see me and tried to persuade me to come to France. I didn't want to go to France. I was finally happy in England, working and living with the diamonds, but he persisted and eventually I agreed to come for a visit. I wasn't a British citizen, but I had a British resident papers and that made me eligible for a special British document for travel. The French wouldn't give me a visa to France but they would allow me to travel through France to Switzerland on a transit visa. So I went by train to the ferry, and from the ferry onto another train that took me to Paris, where instead of going on to Switzerland, I got off the trains. The Krolls were waiting for me at the train station. A few weeks after I arrived, I had to appear before a judge at the Prefecture of Police because I was in France illegally. The Krolls prepped me on what to say, that I was a Holocaust orphan and my family wanted me to stay in France. The French treated refugees well at that time and they gave me a document that said I could stay for six months. When the six months were up, I got another document for three years, so I stayed. I had really never had any residual problems from the Holocaust until I came to stay in Paris, at the Kroll's home. I had a nightmare of being guest in a guest chamber. Rav and Anja Kroll's bedroom was next door to the room where I was sleeping, and I must have screamed out in my sleep. They heard me, came in, and took me into their bed. I was sixteen by then, but they put me in the middle of their double bed, between the two of them, and took a while before they could quiet me down. The Krolls had established a small textile factory outside Paris, and Ralph Kroll, his wife, their daughter Therese, and I lived above it. The factory had two mechanical looms making gabardine and three or four hand looms making woolen scarves. A few Holocaust survivors worked there alongside a few French workers. The Kroll sent me to learn French, and within a few weeks I was fluent enough in colloquial French that there was no point in my continuing to go to school. I started working at the factory and ended up managing it. I would get up every morning at five, start up the furnace, and wait for everyone to get there. I learned how to work the looms and how to make designs and about deliveries. I worked there until I was 18 years old. And at that point, I decided I didn't want to live with the Krolls anymore. I was disenchanted with my life there. I was a bit rebellious, and I wanted to strike out on my own, to be my own man. The Krolls had helped me, but I felt like a stepchild to them. And I had a sort of love and hate relationship with their daughter, Therese. Maybe she saw me taking the place of a son that her parents never had. I don't know for sure. Our relationship wasn't volatile, but it was slightly uncomfortable for me. Therese was very smart and later went on to become a professor. She is now a professor emeritus at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and she and I are friends today. I decided that what I wanted was to go to Israel and join the army. I had wanted to go to Israel right after the war and had dreamt of becoming an officer, but I didn't want to go as a refugee, and I didn't realize that you couldn't become an officer without an education. At the end of 1951, I bought a ticket and went by ship to Israel to join the army.